This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. For two years, my guest tried to get his book published. Literary agents said they couldn't sell it. Some even laughed at him. He got 144 rejection letters. Would you give up after that many attempts, or would you persevere? If you've ever heard of the book, Chicken Soup for the Soul, then you know he persevered. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and I am so honored today to have joining me the beloved originator of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, Jack Canfield. Jack, welcome to the show. Uh, My pleasure, Liz. Thanks for having me. The Chicken Soup for the Soul series has more than 250 different titles. We're talking chicken soup for women, teens, pets, golfers, and so many more. And it's sold more than 500 million books worldwide and translated into 43 languages. When you look back on those early days when the universe was testing both yours and your co-author Mark Victor Hansen's commitment to that first book, what kept you going? I think what kept us both going was that we were giving a lot of talks, speeches, and I was talking to a lot of schools and a lot of professional conferences and so forth. And everybody always loved the stories. We got standing ovations. People would ask if we had copies of them. They'd say, are they in a book anywhere? I need to read them to my students, my family, my sales team. And so we knew that they had, you know, resonance with people. But the fact was that in New York, where most books got sold at that time, Nobody had ever had success publishing collections of short stories because mostly they were literary short stories. So we just knew in our hearts that people responded to them. And it was kind of a divine guidance, if you will. I just knew I had to not give up. Persistence versus insanity, I think, is one of the things that you once said. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't they think it was a cookbook when it first came out? Well, I don't know that the publishers did because they would get samples. But what uh, I'll tell you a cute story. I was supposed to speak in uh, Chicago at a big hotel, and we sent about, I don't know, 500 books to sell in the back of the room. And I get there, and there's no books. And so when we checked with UPS, they said they were delivered, signed by some guy. <laughs> I said to the guy who was in charge of uh, you know, security for the building, I said, we have to open up every room where anything's stored. And lo and behold, we found them in the kitchen in the lockup where they keep food right next to Kimball's tomato soup. <laughs> That's very funny. And then the title for this book, if people don't know, actually came to you on a chalkboard during a meditation. Wow, pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, we had to go to New York with an agent, which didn't turn out, you know, the first time we went, we didn't, but he said, you have to have a title. We just had all these stories and no title. So Mark and I are both meditators. So we said, well, let's meditate and we'll ask a higher power to give us an answer. And on Wednesday of that week, third day into it, I was meditating and all of a sudden this green chalkboard like in school appears and this hand comes out and writes chicken soup on it. And I remember thinking in my head, what the heck does chicken soup have to do with this book? And then this voice in my head said, well, when you were sick, your grandmother gave you chicken soup to make you better again when you had the flu or a cold. And I said to the voice, well, there's no, you know, this book's not about sick people. Uh, and it said, well, people's spirits are sick. And so I thought, chicken soup for the spirit? No, chicken soup for the soul. And then I got goosebumps. Oh, I love it. Told my wife, she got goosebumps. I told Mark, he got goosebumps. We told our agent, he got goosebumps. 
no one in New York got goosebumps. <laughs> we had to wait a while. <laughs> well, besides being a prolific author of many, many books, you were featured in the movie The Secret. You're an award-winning speaker, an internationally recognized leader in personal development, and for 40 years have been teaching people from all walks of life how to create the life that they desire. But your own childhood was not an easy one. Other than getting out of West Virginia, did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? I think your parents wanted you to be a lawyer. Yeah, my mom wanted it. Well, it would have made my mother happy if I'd gone to Annapolis because she was in love with guys who went to the Navy. If I'd have been a Catholic priest and a lawyer all at the same time, that would have been... <laughs> that was the winning very, combination. <laughs> that was the winning combination, you know. So I went there. I went to college thinking I'd become a lawyer, but I sold refrigerator rentals my freshman year to make some money. The people in the law school, I would knock on doors. They'd go, go away. And then I started to realize how how hard they were working. And I thought, do I really want to study that hard? And secondarily, I'm not litigious. I'm not, I'm not an anti-guy. I'm more of a mediator type person. It's great win-win. So I've quickly morphed out of that. And my senior year, I took an, a, a, just an elective class just for fun. It was uh, called SOCREL 10, Social Relations 10. And it was like an encounter group. We just sat around and talked about our feelings and our goals and our values and I thought, I want to do this. And that's really how I got involved in the human potential movement. It was my last year of college. Well, I should share with everybody that you were accepted to Yale, Brown, and Harvard, all three of them. Mm -hmm. And you did get a full scholarship to Harvard. And then you went on and you got that master's degree. And it was in psychological education. But you initially didn't set out to be a teacher. When did you fall in love with teaching and why? Well, my senior year in, in, at Harvard, I, I said, I really want to do the psychology thing. And he said, you got a problem. I said, what's that? You've, you've, you've taken one undergraduate psychology class. And even that one's kind of questionable. <laughs> I said, what do I do? They said, well, you're, you've majored in history. Why don't you go to you know, the University of Chicago, they recommended, which I did get into, and study how to teach history. And while you're in graduate school, you can kind of start studying psychology so I went to the University of Chicago, became a history teacher in the inner city schools. And it was only after I taught there for a couple of years and became more interested in why the kids weren't motivated than I was in teaching history. And I met a man named Barry Clement Stone, who was a self-made millionaire. I think he was worth $600 million back in you know, the 70s, which would be a billionaire mm -hmm. by today's standards. And while I was working for him, this professor from the University of Massachusetts, who was in the psychological education department, uh, I met him at a conference and he, we talked and he fell in love with me in the sense and said, I think you have a lot of potential. Why don't you come? I'll get you a scholarship again. So I went to the University of Massachusetts. That's where I got my MA in psychological education, which was cool. I mean, yeah. basically the things that are make our lives work, you know, relationships, communication skills, knowing who we are, values, none of that was being taught in the schools. Yeah. And we were studying it and it was like, Everywhere we teach it to teachers, they just wake up and go, this is way cool. We want to teach this. And that began in my career. I wrote a book that during that period of time, I was a graduate student called 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in the Classroom. And that took off and sold 400,000 copies, which is unheard of in education. And I started getting invited all over the country to speak. And that's when I decided I didn't need a doctorate. <laughs> I, dropped out, I dropped out of graduate school. There's this famous line in the Cheech and Chong movie where he says, we don't need no stinking badges. And that was kind of like, for me, I realized I didn't need, the book was enough of a credential. And so yeah. I stopped my academic career. One of the things that I found so interesting about your high school teaching career is that some of the kids that were 
in your classroom, well, they were dropouts, some of them, some of them were expelled. Mm. And some of them would sneak back in simply because they wanted to be in your class. What do you think they were craving? And what did they teach you? Well, I think they were craving someone that believed in them, someone Mm -hmm. that uh, taught them things they really wanted to know. I mean, I don't know that most of them wanted to know, you know, that much history. Although I did buy a book called Before the Mayflower. It was a paperback. <laughs> I bought it for every student in my class. It was a three ninety five paperback. And it was um, written by Lerome Bennett, I think was his name. And it was a history of African-Americans in America. And so I said, no one's teaching your history. And here we are with the Tulsa, Oklahoma thing happening. And, you know, I, and I have to say, I'm teaching African-American history back then. I don't even remember that, you know. So right. the reality was that these kids had no sense of their own history. And I think that I was affirming that they had value. Mm -hmm. I was listening to their feelings. I was getting them into groups and talking about their lives. And I was teaching them to believe in themselves, that they could do anything. I think there wasn't anyone in their life doing that. Mm -hmm. Like you said, when they were suspended, they would sneak past the all guard, (laughs) come to my class, sneak back out of school again. Well, that says a lot about you and says a lot about your teaching style. You mentioned uh, Clement Stone, who was your first real mentor a moment ago. And I know he was very important in your life. What was the most important lesson that you learned from him? I think several things. Number one, that success wasn't a four-letter word. I grew up in a family where, you know, if you had a lot of money, you must have screwed somebody in the process. And so I had to overcome that belief and that money wasn't bad. You could do good things with money as he did. He had a huge foundation, which is the part I worked in. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing he taught me, he was a Republican. I was a very liberal Democrat at that time. He one day drew two circles. And one overlapped the other. And he said, over here, we disagree on this outer part of the circle. But where the two circles overlapped, he said, that's where we agree, that we need to empower people in the inner city. We need to teach self-esteem. We need to teach success skills. And so let's focus on that and not where we disagree. That was his philosophy in life. He could cooperate Mm -hmm. with anybody Mm -hmm. on where they agreed something they could do. And then don't waste your time arguing about the things you're never going to agree about. That was really really helpful. And then he taught me to set goals, to visualize, to use affirmations, to uh, believe in the law of attraction. We didn't call it back then, call it just positive thinking. (laughs) That's what we call it today. Yeah. Didn't he ask you a question about how many hours of TV you were watching? Well, yeah, this is true. This is true. When, When I did my intake interview with him, he asked me three questions. And one of them was, how much television do you watch? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, this is a simple question. Think. He's always saying, think. You know, so I did. I said, well, I think maybe three hours I'd watch like Good Morning America or to the day show in the morning. I'd watch the news when I got home and usually one hour of something, maybe Johnny Carson back then or I don't know what, what it was. And he said, well, I want you to cut out one hour of TV a day. And I said, OK, why? He said that would give you 365 additional hours a year. You divide that by a 40 hour work week. That's nine and a half weeks. That's two months of extra time to be successful to read, to think, to, you know, exercise, to, you know, whatever. And literally all the books I've ever written were in that extra hour, you know, that Mm -hmm. I carved out of my life, you know, and the average American now watches six hours either of TV or surfing the internet. And you think about that, that's one fourth of a 24 hour day. That means 15 years of a 60 year life is spent in front of a television or a computer doing aimless things. So I think part of my success was the fact that I, took his advice and said, okay, I'm going to spend time doing things that are productive. When you put it in that context and sort of that comparison, it really drives it home. It's really Mm -hmm. quite extraordinary when you think about it like that. 
All those stories, Chicken Soup for the Soul, the whole series, huge success. But along the way, you also begin to realize that while all of those stories, all of those books tugged at your heartstrings, impacted millions of people's lives, you had to let go of this good thing in order to bring about the next great thing. How hard was that for you to do? Well, it was a little difficult in the sense that my identity was the chicken soup guy. You know, yeah. I'd be on an airplane and someone would say, who are you? I'd say, Jack Canfield, nothing. And they'd say, what do you do? I'd say, I write books. What, anything I've heard of? Chicken soup for the soul. Oh, my God. You know, so <laughs> chicken soup for the soul was, was kind of who I was. And I was identified with that and all the good things that came from it. And I think letting go of that was important for me to realize we're never our, the things we do. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, the the other part of it was I was getting a little jaded, you know, like not another one-legged guy climbs Mount Everest story. I mean, that's terrible when you start thinking <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> so but it's truthful. I, like, I mean. <laughs> I know. Things that used to inspire me were like, okay, I get it. And then we had a, a guy whose wife really wanted to be the editor of that series, and he made us an offer that was ridiculous. So we said yes. And that's, that's how that came about. Wow. And what it did was, it provided me with a year to just literally, I didn't take it off totally, but mostly just reassess what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And that's when I started focusing on the success principles and the work I do now. Exactly. And, and that really did kind of create the room for that book, the success principles, how to get from where you are to where you want to be. And in it, you write, these principles work if you work the principles. And I've mm -hmm. read it, and I think the first principle may be the hardest one of all, which is you have to take 100% responsibility for your life. Can you explain how we do that? Yeah, it's hard. It's, it, it's, it is the foundational principle. It's the one that people have the most problem with. I'm thinking of actually writing a whole book just on that one topic. But anyway, the point being that if you believe that you're not responsible for your life, then you have to believe that other things outside of you are responsible, which puts you in what we call victim consciousness. You're mm -hmm. always blaming the president, the economy, the, the Im immigrants, the other party, you know, all the things that we do, complaining about people, making excuses, et cetera. And it, it feels good when you do that and you get a lot of agreement when you do that, but it doesn't change your reality when you do that. Mm -hmm. So, I ask people to just act as if you're 100% responsible for anything you're experiencing. You've either created it, promoted it, or allowed it to be that way. I talk to a lot of spiritually evolved people, I mean really high, like the Dalai Lama type people, who would say that you are 100% responsible. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know in my own direct spiritual awareness that I know that for a fact, but what I do know for a fact is that when people act as if that's true, which hundreds of thousands of my students around the world have done, their lives dramatically change. They get healthier, they make more money, they have better relationships, they have better, you know, they're, they're a better parent, they're a better employee or employer, etc. So even if it's not true, which I think it is, the reality is when we act from that perspective, everything in life works better. I'm curious because the day that you left for Harvard, your dad gave you 20 bucks and he said, that's all you're going to get. And was that your first real lesson that you had, that you had to take control of your life, that you were 100% responsible for your life? Was that that first lesson in that? Well, he also said, if you remember, I don't know where you read that, but he also said, 
if you need a helping hand, look at the end of your own arm, which I thought was a pretty powerful statement. And yeah, I worked my way through college. I cleaned dorm rooms. I cut grass. I chopped wood on the weekends for graduate, you know, people, alumni, et cetera. And then I worked at summer camps in the summer and I worked on a farm in the summer and I worked my way through graduate school. And that's just what I did because I knew I had to, but even more importantly than making it financially and surviving, it's like your happiness is a hundred percent responsible. Yeah. Like if you, if you realize that the only time you're upset is when you think something shouldn't be the way it is, that someone shouldn't have done what they did or they should have done something different or that person shouldn't do this or the president should or shouldn't do that. It's not the act of what's really happening in reality. It's my belief that it shouldn't be that way. My wife shouldn't have said that my son should do this. That's what makes me unhappy. Mm -hmm. You know, and like, I, I remember just recently I was telling a group of women I was working with that, you know, they're just thinking, well, my daughter ruined my life last night. You know, she ruined my evening. I said, well, how'd she do that? Well, she was supposed to be home at midnight. And when did she come home? One. And, <laughs> and so she ruined your night. Yeah. Well, what were you doing between midnight and one? Well, I was just imagining all these terrible things that had happened to her. I said, like, what? She said, well, like, maybe she was in an accident. Or worse, she was in the backseat with Billy with no clothes on, you know, whatever. Uh, it was terrible. And I said, well, who was imagining all those things? Me. And what could you have been doing instead? Well, I could have been thinking my daughter's probably having a good time. She's safe, whatever. So it's that it's our thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's our beliefs that are creating our pain and not the, not the reality of the world. Now, obviously if someone hits you with a baseball bat, someone hits you with the car, you know, what I've learned over the years, Liz, is that even the terrible things that happened, like when I was not rehired as a teacher, when I got, when I got divorced, whatever, I really believe this phrase, the world is always happening for you, not to you. Mm -hmm. And, and you look back, I look back on everything I thought was terrible at the time. And thank God it happened because it, it sent me in a new direction. It made me wake up. It gave me a new perspective. It made me develop perseverance. Once you get that, it, you, you know, then you don't have to be upset with life or yourself and you, you end up being happy all the time. Well, and Napoleon Hill says, you know, optimism is a choice. And I firmly believe that we have a choice every day, whether to be happy, whether to be sad. It doesn't mean that there aren't bad things going on, but it's just mm -hmm. the choice that we have of how we want to look at that day. You've also said we all have unlimited possibilities to become anything we want. What stands mm -hmm. in our way of making that happen? Well, I think there's two things. Number one is our fears. Number two is our beliefs. Mm -hmm. And the beliefs come from conditioning, cultural conditioning. You know, the black students I taught in Chicago, their cultural conditioning is they weren't as good as white people at the time. That they didn't have the capability, the same level of intelligence. And they, they, it was all around them in the television. You know, there was always the black people who were the criminals. So there is some cultural conditioning that occurs. Mm -hmm. I mean, people in Northern Africa believe that you should have clitorectomies for women. I don't think that's a good thing, mm. but it's part of the culture, you know? And so there's that conditioning. There's your parents, there's your religion. And then the decisions you make, which are the worst ones, meaning the most powerful. So let's say that, I'll give you an example. I was doing a workshop recently and this woman was uh, a world-class skier. And she was never performing well in competitions as well as she would perform in practice. And when we did this exercise I do to help people discover and release their limiting beliefs, she went back to nine years old and remembered asking her mother, how come you never display my trophies, my medals, and my ribbons? And she says, well, whenever you win, it makes your brothers feel bad because they never win. Oh, and so she decided at nine years old, when I win, it makes people I care about feel bad. Oh. So it would make other people on her team feel bad. Other people, competitors feel bad. Her, her brother and sister feel bad. 
So when we unearthed that and replaced it with, you know, everyone is responsible for their own feelings and I can win what I want to, she started winning again. Mm, so powerful. Wow. And vision boards are also incredibly powerful. And you often say that we must focus on the what and don't worry about the how. <laughs> how do we do that? <laughs> well, it's true. In other words, I believe that the, you know, the main thing we have to do is get clear about what we want. You, know, you mentioned Napoleon Hill. He said you have to have a burning desire. That's the number one thing. What do you want? Then you have to believe it's possible. And then you have to do some work in terms of visualizing it and believe, you know, that it's true, that you can see it and feel mm -hmm. it. You know, I was just listening to an audio tape this morning when I do a walk every morning talking about the importance of visualizing, having what you want and feeling the feelings you would feel. This is the part that most people miss. They can see the car they want, but they can't imagine being in the car and feeling the joy of the car. You know, so I always tell people, if there's a car you want, go test drive it. You know, and then feel what it feels like to be in that Mercedes or that BMW or that Lexus or whatever it is you want to have. And if you think you can't afford the hotel room that the Ritz Carlton, go tell them you're going to have a wedding there and you want to see the bridal suite because your mother's <laughs> going to stay there. And then you get to see this room and you go, oh, this is possible. What's it feel? It feels great to be in this room. And let's take a picture of it, right? And put it on your board. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I have a whole, I have a whole door from, it's eight foot tall and about three feet wide. And it's a vision board from top to bottom of all the things I want to manifest in my life. And what's the last picture you put up on that board? The last picture I put up on that board was actually a picture of a conference of me speaking to about 10,000 people. Because one of my goals is to have a million people training the success principles work around the world. And literally today we're having a meeting with my staff to talk about how do we move to the next level. We trained about 4,500 people to teach this work. But now we have to train trainers of trainers and develop country coordinators in order to create a movement. So mm. that's the picture of me being at a, like a regional conference, like in Singapore, of all the people in the East, let's say. I love it. I'm going to visualize for you as well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I have to tell you a funny vision board story. So I'm in Chicago. It's winter. It's snowing kind of day. And I just finished a talk for some convention and I'm running from the hotel to the limo. And it's snowing, like it's really starting to come down. I'm going to, like, I got to get to O'Hare before the last plane leaves. Or I'm going to be stuck in Chicago. So I, get, I jump into this limo and we take off. And I always talk to the limo drivers and I notice he has an accent. And I say, where, where are you from? He said, Lithuania. I said, well, how long have you been in America? He said, three years. I said, well, what made you decide to move to America? He said, well, I saw this movie called The Secret. There was this guy named Jack Campfield that said, make a vision board. And so I made a vision board about living in America. And I said, do you know who I am? He said, no, I was just supposed to pick up a guy. Oh, Jack, you're Jack Campfield? <laughs> 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 that is a great story. Oh my gosh. Oh, it blew me away. It blew me away. It's too funny. You believe that we all have a life purpose, but most people are quite confused about what they want to do, let alone who they are. How do we get clear on any of that, Jack? Well, I do believe everyone has a life purpose. I believe we're all born with something we're meant to do. That's why we have talents. That's why we're attracted to certain things. Like all my kids have been attracted to music and art. And I've got a singer son who's in LA right now who went to the Berkeley School of Music in Boston. I have a daughter who's taken a songwriting class and has recorded three songs that are on YouTube now. I have a son who's a drummer in a band. And I have another son who's a hip hop singer. And they all knew exactly what they wanted to do. And they had a talent. I mean, my son, who's a hip hop singer, he can do beatbox. 
like, you know, I, I can't even begin to tell you. He sounds like a regular. <laughs> I want to see you do this. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I can't do it. <laughs> My talent is, is seeing people's blocks and helping them remove them and inspiring them with stories and empowering them with tools. But, you know, my wife is a daymaker. What she does is when she talks to people, they always go, oh, thank God you made my day. I was so unhappy, so depressed, so whatever. And that's a valid job to have, you know. Often it shows up in the salon as the person who does your hair. Also, you'll see a lot of daymakers there. But people who are meant to cook, we need cooks, we need bakers, we need people who love to do mechanical things, who love to invent things, you know, who love to create SpaceX and, you know, put rockets in the air. We, We need all those people. And sure. if you give yourself permission to do that, which you're drawn to do, I believe everything that needs to be done will. The healers will heal. The musicians will make music. The people that love to make movies will, will all be entertained. The problem is we get talked out of it. You don't want to do that. You can't make money in music. You know, you need a real job. And so little by little, you know, we're talked out of it. To go back to your original question, I think three ways that I work with people. Number one, do a joy review. Where did you feel the most joy in your life? I have a story in my book about a girl who was always loved to lead things. And she was a head of her high school, you know, a student body. She was the head of her sorority in college. And she wanted to be a leader. And they had no leadership program at Ohio State. So she actually created an independent study for leadership. At 22 years old, she ended up working in the Pentagon training leaders in the military, which is ridiculous. And now she runs a foundation training young women to be leaders. But she had this leadership thing that was always in her because she looked back and said, this is where I felt the most joy. This is what I want to do. And everyone mm-hmm. was pushing her to be a veterinarian because she loved animals. But when she started studying biochemistry and anatomy, not so much. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> I can agree with her on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so anyway, yeah. uh, I do a guided visualization where I take people up a mountain, a, guy, a guardian angel comes down, they get a gift in a golden box. That gift symbolizes their purpose. So people will get hearts and books and keys and all kinds of things. And then they work to understand what that means. And then the third way is in my book, The Success Principles. I think it's the second chapter of uh, Be Clear Why You're Here. There's a paper and pencil test which asks you, what are two qualities you love to express the most? How do you love to express them? So mine are love and joy. How I love to express them is inspiring and empowering people. Third question, what's the world look like when it's working perfectly according to you? Me, I say everyone's living their highest vision. And then um, you put that all together. So my life purpose is inspiring and empowering people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy. And that's what my work's about. I love it. I've taken a few of your courses and read your books. I follow you on social media, which means I get your emails as well. And in a recent email, you spoke of the massive transformation that we all have been through and that when the world is in the midst of massive transformation, that is the best time for each of us to transform. And you posed a question in that email. How do I need to evolve to thrive in an ever-changing world? Jack, how do you answer that question for yourself? Well, it's a question I don't think there's only one answer. You have to ask it continually. So, you know, I meditate, I wouldn't say every day, probably five days a week. And I, I ask questions like that. You know, what, what, what do I need to be focusing on? Where do I need to be putting my energy? Is there something I'm avoiding that I need to be addressing? For me right now, all of a sudden, I, I had been working on three books before the pandemic hit. And then mm. when the pandemic hit, I had $800,000 in deposits in our company for people who signed up for seminars that we no longer could deliver. So mm-hmm. we had to pivot really quickly to do everything online. 
And mm-hmm. we had to give them, probably gave about 100000 of that back to people who just wanted live seminars. But we had to learn how to be in a, in a virtual world and be successful at doing that. So that was everything I focused on for the first five or six months. And then it was delivering all that and doing mastermind groups and coaching groups and all this stuff online. We just did a three-day live seminar online with about 500 people in it. You probably heard Tony Robbins did one recently with 40,000 yes. people in it, you know? Yes. <laughs> one of the things Tony says is success leaves clues. And so I said, well, Tony figured it out. Let's go talk to the people he did that with, which is a company called Sage uh, Event Productions. And we hired them to do the same thing for us. And we learned a ton. I mean, we know so much yeah. more now than we did before. I realized that I had not written a word for my books for like, you know, almost 12 months, 14 months. So right now I'm focusing on the inner guidance I'm getting is finish these books. It's time to get them out there. I would say they're going to be better books because of what we learned during the Mm -hmm. pandemic, you know, about how to Mm -hmm. deal with stress and how to cope with, you know, when the world's not looking the way you'd like it to, how do you survive? Because change is all there ever is. Right. It's the only constant, right? Yeah. You have been incredibly successful. You went from those 21 cent dinners that you talk about in your books to, you know, running this billion dollar publishing empire. What keeps you up at night? What stresses you out? Um, this is going to sound weird, but nothing keeps me up at night. I, I don't get stressed out that much anymore. I, I can't say that I wasn't a little stressed when the pandemic hit and we had this $800,000 deliverable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had to figure out. Um, That's so, a little stressful. So I was probably staying up till midnight or one o'clock every night working on that, figuring it out. I have a, a ring I wear. It's called an aura ring. And it, it's like a Fitbit that tells you how you go to sleep. And I fall asleep within 10 minutes of putting my head down. When I meditate in the morning, probably is when thing, issues show up more in my consciousness. Things like, you know, mm-hmm. how do I keep my staff motivated? How do I keep this momentum going? How do I keep my health going? How do mm-hmm. I stay connected to my eight-year-old grandson who I haven't seen for 14 months who lives in Brooklyn, I live mm-hmm. in California, you know, things like that. So I believe that, you know, I'm doing the things I need to do. And so, and I don't worry about the future because I believe it just happens one day at a time. Something that someone said once, and it changed my life, was probably Eckhart Tolle in The Power of Now. Mm-hmm. All there is is now. Right. You know, and if you can handle now well, life is just a series of nows. And so we get so hung up about the future that takes us out of the now. And then we worry about the future or we get upset about the past. But as long as I'm in the present, there's enough. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm breathing. I've got food. There's, there's, um, I'm, I'm not freezing to death you know, whatever. Just handle the now as elegantly as you can. Deal with what's in front of you. I saw a wonderful movie last year. I don't remember the name of it, but it was about a woman who her husband and son were killed. And she goes out into the wilderness to live alone. But she almost dies because she doesn't know what the hell she's doing. This Native American, well, he's actually Native Canadian, First Nation, comes upon her and saves her life. And at one point she says, why did you save me? He says, well, you were in my path. Meaning mm. he discovered her and <laughs> said, what else do you do? <laughs> it's like, That's here you right. are. You're in trouble. There you are. Yeah. Well, Jack, for those of you who are listening, has a special offer for everyone. You will be able to take his free The Success Principles 10-Day Transformation Program, and we're going to be providing that link. It's jackcanfield.com slash transformation. We'll have it in the show notes for everyone. Jack, what will people learn from this free program that I'm so excited that you're offering to everyone? Well, we cover 10 success principles. We've talked about a couple of them, you know, take Mm -hmm. 100% responsibility, get clear why you're here, which is like purpose. 
have clear goals, visualize, do affirmations, so forth. So what we did was every day, if you sign up, you'll get a three to five, maybe seven minutes max download of a, vid- a video of me talking about that principle. And then I give you an assignment for the day of how to integrate that principle into your day's activities. So it literally Velcros to your system. Mm-hmm. Most people listen to seminars, take notes, and then put them on the shelf. So you end up with what they call shelf esteem, which is not really what you want. <laughs> <laughs> you, you want to take and have these, you know, become behaviors. It's 10 days in a row. You don't have to do them in a row, obviously, but you can do however you want. But the point being, if you do all 10, there's a sequence. I talk about the idea that life is like a combination lock. If you know the right numbers in the right order, mm-hmm. the lock will open. doesn't matter who you are, where you are, how educated you are the lock will open. But if you're missing one number, I don't care how hard you try, the lock won't open. So these are the numbers, if you will, to unlocking success. I'll just share an anecdote. There was a guy who got that two different times, never completed it because he was really, really busy. And then he was in the hospital and he had nothing better to do for 10 days. So he did the 10-day course. And then he wrote a blog called How a Free 10-Day Transformation Course made me an extra million dollars last year. So that's, wow. that's how valuable it is if you actually do it. <laughs> yes, that's jackcanfield.com slash transformation. Oh my, that's a great story. Is there anything else, Jack, that you would like to share with us today? Well, one of the things I always like to say, you know, at the end of an interview is you have everything you need to do anything you want. I truly believe from my experience of working with hundreds of thousands of people live and millions online, that you're never given a dream without the capacity to make it come true, that you have the ability. You may have to learn new things. You may have to partner with people. You may have to let go of some beliefs, do some inner work, but you have the ability to produce whatever it is that show up in you as inspirations or desires, but you have to do the work. And if you're willing to do that, then you can have anything you want. I've seen that happen over and over and over. Mm. You can learn all, all about Jack's books and programs at jackcanfield.com. Jack, this show, this podcast is all about people transforming, recreating, living their best life. What does living your best life mean to you and what would you like your legacy to be? Well, living my best life means that I'm happy because of, I believe joy is our feedback system. It says you're on course. So when I'm not happy, I have to look at what am I not doing or doing I shouldn't be doing. And then I get back on course being happy. I think my legacy would be that he inspired and empowered millions of people to live their dreams. And I believe that if I do that, then the world will be a better place. More people will solve problems and people will be happier. Happy people don't kill people. Happy people don't abuse people. Happy people don't take advantage. Happy people tend not to be as racist and so forth. So that's my legacy that I want to leave. And I think Mm -hmm. the books have done that and my seminars now. It's all the people I'm training to do the work, and we're seeing it happening in schools and corporations and prisons and uh, halfway shelters, homeless shelters, rehab centers, and so forth. So that's what I want to do. And, you know, I'm 77, and I don't plan to retire I just because I'm too happy doing what I want to do. I'm going to keep doing it until I can't do it anymore. Well, you certainly are helping millions of people create the life they're dreaming of. And on behalf of all of them, (laughs) I say thank you because they are living their best life too. And thank you so much for being my guest today. You've been on my vision board, whether you knew it or not, (laughs) for about a year or so. And to be able to have this opportunity with you today is indeed an honor. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Liz. This was really one of the better interviews I've ever done. You did your homework and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for saying that. And thanks to all of you for listening today. 
May all of you be inspired to create the life you are dreaming of and live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fastwitchmedia.space.